Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight in the audiobook speakeasy is an audio engineer who my friend and former speakeasy guest, Jamie Matler, referred me to. And anyone who Jamie Matler recommends is most welcome anytime here in the speakeasy. He is the founder and president at Smoke Media after spending eight years as an engineer and director at Audible Studios. Keith Reynolds, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Thanks, Rich. Good to be here. Yeah, this is great. I'm really glad that you uh, that you had some time to come in. Um, so, uh, to, so Jamie Matler was on way back episode five, I believe it was. Tell me how you know Jamie. Uh, so Jamie and I met uh, when she started uh, doing some gigs at Audible. I want to say, God, dating myself at this point, but I want to say something like 2006, 2007, maybe somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe a little bit later, uh, and, uh, really, uh, hit it off as most people do with Jamie, um, because she is just spectacular and fun and, uh, uh, weird in the best possible way. Um, (laughs) and those kind of people really resonate with me. Um, and so, yeah, we met at, at Audible and, uh, uh, used to go hang out at this other studio in Union, uh, to do some work in New Jersey. Um, and, uh, before we got on the air, I was, uh, telling you about a, a tremendous uh, night uh, that a bunch of us uh, spent in Chicago at APAC a couple of years ago um, that was pretty spectacular. So yeah, you ever you ever need a party rounded up or a really good audiobook put together, you call Jamie Matler. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that, all that you said about Jamie. I didn't know that much about Jamie when she, uh, she came in and had a chat with me here. And uh, I loved that conversation. She has just an amazing story. Um, the, the people that she has met and the situations that she's been in. And just like any life, you know, there are good times and bad times. But hearing about the experiences that she has had and, um, and the doors that, that those opened and what she learned from those things, I, I really enjoyed that chat. She was great. Yeah, she's spectacular. Yeah. All right. Well, so thanks for coming into the speakeasy tonight. What are you drinking? I am drinking uh, my old standby that I drink way too much of. Uh, start first thing in the morning and take it through all day long. Uh, Coca-Cola. Ah, uh, Coca-Cola. I was going to say, wow, it, with that kind of an intro, I hope it's not bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've never, for, for me, I've never been uh, uh, much of a drinker. Uh, mm. I figured out in college that um, I liked smoking pot more than I liked drinking, and I never really developed a good tolerance for alcohol. So I'm one of those people that like... Yeah, we'll go out, we'll have a drink, and I know about halfway through the first beer, I'm either about to take a nap or I'm going to have a really good time that night. And it's about <laughs> 75% naps is what I end up with with alcohol. Well, I totally understand that. All right. Well, well, Coca-Cola is welcome here in the speakeasy. I, however, am joining you with a cocktail. As usual here in the speakeasy, uh, I'm having an old classic cocktail, which a lot of times gets bad press, and that's a whiskey sour. I um, don't drink a whole lot of sugar, so it's not a very sweet whiskey sour, but it does have a lot of lemon juice, and I do like tart things. And uh, and I started off with some Knob Creek bourbon. So so that is my drink tonight to go along with your Coke. 
So, so what's, um, what's in a whiskey sour? Is it just the, the, the lemon and the, the, the whiskey or what's the makeup? It is. So, so the, I believe the traditional recipe actually includes instead of simple syrup or sugar, it, it has something called gom syrup, which has, um, I think it's gum Arabic in it, which I think is supposed to make it a, uh, it just changes the texture of the drink. And it also has an egg white and, I don't know. There's something about egg whites in drinks that just kind of ook me out. And so I have never included an egg white in a drink, even if that's the official recipe. Mm, yeah, just, I, I, that, that seems a little weird to me. That's yeah, a little extra. It, it, all, it, it, it all has to do with the texture of the drink. And I have had some cocktails out at restaurants where I'm pretty sure that that's what they did to give it the, I don't know, the silky, smooth kind of feel to it. But to me, if I'm making a drink at home, I don't know. I'm just not going to go through that much work. You know, what a pain in the ass to have to crack open an egg just to make a drink. So, uh, so I usually skip that. But other than that, yeah, it's just the, uh, the whiskey, uh, three parts whiskey, two parts lemon juice, and uh, one part gom syrup. I used just a, a half an ounce of uh, simple syrup instead because I don't, I don't have any of the other available. But uh, so it's no basically need to get fancy. Yeah, it's basically just uh, bourbon and uh, and lemon juice and a little sweetener. That's it. Take it. Well, I can. I, I think I can add a little bit to the cocktail chat for the show. I did. Uh, I had a drinks meeting uh, Monday night and uh, a nap shortly thereafter. But while, <laughs> while I was while I was at the bar, I did have a very delicious blueberry ricky, um, and I couldn't tell you what was in it, but it was delightful and purple. So a blueberry Ricky. Now I, I know that a Ricky is typically, uh, simply either typically bourbon or gin. I mean, you can make it with anything, but it's typically bourbon or gin, uh, and sparkling water and lime juice, the juice of, of half a lime. And technically the half of the lime that you squeezed is supposed to be thrown into the drink, which I always find a bit much, but, um, so a blueberry, that makes me think that it's, it's just a basic Ricky, but that they muddled some blueberries first. And I can imagine that would add a lot of color. And since I love blueberries, probably a good flavor as well. It was delightful. I, I will have to, uh, have to try one of those. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, so at least you can add to the, the, uh, cocktail conversation, even if you're only having Coke. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming in, Keith. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So, uh, so where are you from originally, Keith? I am from a little town in Maine called Winslow. Um, so that was where I was uh, born and raised till I was about uh, 18. Uh, left to go to college in New York. Uh, dropped out of college very swiftly um, and bummed around uh, New York recording studios for uh, five or six years. Um, and, Where'd you go uh, to school in New York for uh, for a semester or two? Uh, Manhattan School of Music. Uh, so uh -huh. I had actually, so I I was kind of I was on a track to be a, a composer, um, and had gotten into a bunch of a uh, bunch of different schools, New England Conservatory and Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music and these different places. Um, and uh, my senior year of high school, uh, a friend of mine uh, had heard that uh, a a band from Maine called the Rustic Overtones, who, you know, one of the only bands ever to get a major label deal out of, out of Maine, um, were, uh, looking for a new drummer. He was a drummer. He wanted me to come down for moral support for his audition. So I did. That's um, cool. and, uh, he goes into audition he comes back out to the car cause I didn't want to go in and blow up his spot. Comes back out to the car five minutes later and he says, so turns out they also just fired their saxophone player. If you want to come in and audition. Um, and so I ended up getting the gig and, uh, 
finished high school via correspondence and toured with the band for a little while. Um, but did your friend get the gig? He did not. You know, Rich, I was trying to just kind of like <laughs> push that under the rug, um, you know. I, I'm uh, sure that that was a slightly difficult situation. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, he is uh, he's one of these like live and let live hippies. Um, and oh, that's good. I think it genuinely did not bother him. Um, one of the few people on the planet that I think I could I could comfortably say that about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I the band broke up, you know, I, three to six months, something like that, after um, I got on and started touring uh, with them. And uh, uh, I was kind of faced with, all right, well, I got into all these schools. I can kind of, I can go to school and continue back along that path. But I will tell you what, once you've been on stage in front of several thousand people um, when you're 18 years old and many of them are young, attractive women and they're singing your lyrics back at you, you know, jazz composition in a room by yourself for the rest of your life does not look that attractive. Um, that does seem to be quite a contrast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I dropped out of school and I started working in recording studios and uh, ostensibly was trying to learn how to become an engineer, but also quickly realized that um, I uh, was going to be one of the world's worst recording engineers. Um, I still am. I know enough to get by, um, but my skills were always in production and writing and, and putting projects together. And so that's kind of the direction I started to, to head in. Got it. So that's, uh, that's interesting. The whole, uh, the whole music angle. Um, so you were, you were into composition that, that always interests me because I know that a lot of musicians that I know they're into playing and they're into, um, I don't know the, I guess just the performance aspect. Whereas when I was a music major for uh, a hot minute back when I was in college, uh, I loved music theory. I absolutely loved it. Yes. And the, the, the exercises that we would get, I was always trying to find something new and different, even though I knew kind of the point was, well, you have to find these notes because it's going to be in this key and whatnot. I was trying to do something with rhythm and I was trying to do something with notes that would maybe sound like you were about to modulate, but not quite because I just thought it was all fascinating. And I think that part of that is because I'm such a math geek and mm -hmm. a lot of composition is math. So absolutely. Um, so, so it sounds like you were more on that side and then you got lured away by the performance side. Uh, one, 100%. I mean, I'm still very much that, that way. Like, you know, um, my wife and I are, our core difference in music preference is she likes live. She likes things that are maybe a little bit dirty, a little bit messy, and they're more real and authentic. And I want the most perfectly crafted pop tune that you've 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 sat in the studio for months and and edited everything perfectly and put in <laughs> you know and we're very much I'm very much the same way with the podcast that we do you know we tend not to do it spoke uh, a lot of like talking heads chat podcasts um uh, which are great and a lot of people love but I am I've just always been more about let's sit in the studio for weeks or months or years on end and perfect something and then deliver it to the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's really always been my passion. And the, the other thing I never really liked about performance is I get bored very easily. And when you're out on the road and you're playing the same tunes over and over again, um, you know, it just, it, it's just not my scene. Yeah, I don't know how how artists do that. Um, and it's I sometimes I wonder the same thing, having been on stage a few times. Um, I wonder, you know, the people who are in shows in New York that go on for four years and they're doing eight performances a week. Um, 
I, I know that there are ways that you can make it new and fresh every time and, and you have to keep it that way or the audiences are not going to appreciate it with good reason. But uh, I can see how that that could be really difficult, both music, stage, anything like that, where you're doing the same thing over and over. Well, you know, and I think it's it's all in how you're wired as as a human from your experiences and your genetics or whatever the hell makes us how we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, kind of like I, w- I was saying about drinking, where I just don't have that gene that gives me any kind of tolerance and I never developed it. Like, that's just how I'm wired. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when it comes to kind of whether you like perfecting the same thing over and over again and finding ways to make it new versus like I, people who like me, like making something as perfect as you can possibly make in make it and then put it behind you and move on to the next thing. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that's a, that's a, that's a personality type. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you started working in uh, engineering studios and, uh, and learning various parts of, of that, um, that workflow. Um, what were you working on originally? Was it music? Yeah. Uh, so I started as an intern at Quad Studios in New York. Um, a lot of uh, spectacular artists have recorded there, but it's probably most famous for being the place where Tupac got shot the first time. Oh. Um, and uh, uh, spectacular old studio. Um, really learned a lot coming up under there. Also, um, because, you know, Quad was uh, kind of like the, the um, cozy homey studio um in new york you know it wasn't as flashy as sony or avatar or some of these other other places Mm -hmm. um and uh, that kind of laissez-faire attitude helped me quite a lot in my 20s sneaking in and getting free time in the studio when it was empty or um you know uh, occasionally when i didn't have a place to live i ended up sleeping on the studio various studio couches for a little while had most of my stuff stored up in the uh in the uh the tech uh uh shop um, so yeah, it was, it was a really, it was a great place and a home for me for, for several years as I was, as I was starting out. Nice. Um, but yeah, worked at, worked at, uh, quad for several years, bounced around, uh, New York, um, working on many different projects. Um, you know, got to, got lucky enough to, uh, well, I guess, depending on who you ask, I got lucky enough to play with Lauren Hill for a little while. And that was, um, that was a lot of fun, really great experience and a handful of things like that. Um, cool. but uh, by 2007, I was, uh, uh, sleeping on a friend's couch and, uh, you know, uh, working a day job at, um, Sam Ash while I was trying to, you know, make more money off of the music. Um, Mm -hmm. and a friend of mine, uh, Jenny Blaze, who her real name, um, and, uh, one of the, one of the greatest DJs I've ever known and one of the most spectacular humans I've ever known, um, had been working at Audible for a little bit as an engineer, um, was moving to Miami and recommended me as her replacement. Um, went, did an interview and Mike Charzik hired me, God bless him. Um, and started there, uh, I think like, I don't know, a couple weeks after the interview, I think it was late 2007. Um, that's great. And you stayed there for eight years. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I got to nice grow, grow up with, like, oh man, talk about getting like, you know, Mike and I have talked about this before where like, at that point in time, I don't think anybody realized what a rocket ship Audible was going to be. Oh, um, yeah, I'm sure not. Ten years ago? No. No, no. You know, I mean, the, 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 the funny thing now is I still 
like will mention what I've done in the past or talk about audiobooks to people and I'll like start to explain what Audible is or what audiobooks are and they're like, no, 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 I've got a subscription. I, like everybody knows what mm-hmm. this stuff is now, which is mind-blowing yeah. to me. Um, yeah, it, 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 had, it, it took a long time to take off because I remember audiobooks back in the 80s, in the 1980s, and, uh, and I was listening to one on cassette and, uh, and it just, you know, they, they just remained where they were, you know, just very, very low level. And then all of a sudden, sometime around the time that you're talking about, the curve started to pick up just a little bit. And then, you know, in the past five years, all of a sudden it's just, you know, to the moon. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, I think part of it is, is audible driving a market and like seeing a trend and then exploding it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that was the, the, uh, kind of tipping point for so many people to realize, uh, just how powerful audio is. I mean, I don't know if you read the, uh, the article, I think it came out like three or four weeks ago about, um, scientists have done a study that, um, audiobooks are more powerfully, uh, are more emotionally powerful than movies, um, through these like series of metrics and tests that they did with a bunch of different people. Yeah. I saw the headline. I have not read the article yet, but, um, I, I'm not terribly surprised. I'm a little surprised. I, I do look forward to, to reading that and getting the specifics. Um, cause it, it certainly is. I mean, people talk all the time that, uh, that I see talk about audiobooks online and, um, they're, constantly talking about how drawn in they are. And of course that has to do with the performance, but, um, but it, it, they certainly do draw people in. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I, I think too, it's a, um, like I, um, let's talk about my insomnia for a little bit, Rich. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so I think there, there are a couple of things here. Um, one, the, the first audio books I ever listened to, I'm a, I'm a crazy insomniac have, have been ever since I was a small child. Um, and, uh, I think 10 or 11 years old, my parents bought me a box set of Louis L'Amour, uh, audiobooks that were full production, sound design, music, the whole night. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, started listening to those and they would put me right to sleep. And I do not mean this in a bad way. They were, no, I understand. They were fascinating, enveloping, but sometimes your mind just needs a little bit of something to focus on to let you. Yeah. Fall yeah, asleep. no, I, I totally understand. I, I don't take that as a bad thing. I, I do say it every once in a while, uh, jokingly, I tell people, well, you know, so, oh, great. You're, you want, you want to get one of my audiobooks? That's great. I hope it doesn't put you to sleep. But the fact is that in certain situations, that is kind of exactly what you're looking for. And uh, that doesn't mean it's bad. It's just working that way for you at that moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this has continued all through my life and now it's podcasts. And I find that the um, the podcasts that I, uh, tend to want to fall asleep to now, uh, are, uh, the very kind of podcasts that we don't make here for the most part at Spoke and Talking Heads mm-hmm. shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of this kind of plays into, um, the, the same principle of why, uh, the old trope of why old, old people watch television. It's because they want to hang out with their only friends. Mm-hmm. And that's audiobooks and podcasts and the, the voice medium have this very personal touch to them. And it is unlike any other, um, any other medium that we have, 
uh, because it's one to one and you don't, you know, you watch TV together, you watch, uh, you watch movies in groups, you, you, you take in sports in groups. Um, you don't sit around together and all listen to a podcast or listen to an audiobook, And so it becomes right. this very personal thing, um, where you're making, uh, an individual connection with that narrator or that podcast host. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, just before we leave the insomnia thing, I hear that there's one other thing that works really well for that bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I will counter you with marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you spent a lot of time at audible and then, uh, a few years ago you started spoke media. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, um, uh, my wife, uh, is from Dallas, Texas originally. Um, and, uh, she had been, uh, we had both lived in New York for about a dozen years. We met in New York, um, uh, I think 2008, something like that. Uh, no, 2008. Absolutely. I know that for sure. Honey, I love you. Um, <laughs> I, I, she had been getting sick of New York winters. Um, and me being from Maine, you know, I, I, uh, didn't really, you know, I, 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 Cold started to bother me a lot. My, when, I, when I first moved to New York, I used to walk around in a T-shirt in like January just to be like, screw you, I'm from Maine. Um, <laughs> but that changed really quickly. Um, but, but still, you know, cold was my element. I wasn't particularly interested in moving to Dallas because I'm pretty unemployable outside of New York and L.A. Um, and so uh, kind of beat that drum for a couple of years. And then uh, I realized that there was this massive pool of voiceover talent in Dallas uh, because a lot of uh, almost every uh, English overdub of anime, uh, Dragon Ball Z and like all those things, that's all done here in Dallas. Um, there are a lot of video game companies here in Dallas. And so a lot of that work ends up getting done locally. Uh, mm -hmm. L.A. companies come out here to shoot for TV quite a bit. Um, and all that has led to a really strong scene of working actors and a really strong theater scene. That's um, great. So, so there was a talent pool and I thought, you know what, we can, we can make this work and, and I wouldn't mind, you know, avoiding winter. Um, FYI, now that I'm down here, you'll never get me to go back north. It's not <laughs> happening ever again. Yeah, um, I, so, I understand that, believe me. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it, no, I'm just not doing it anymore. Um, uh, I mean, you, you certainly get that being out in, out in Arizona. I, I do. When we were looking to move, uh, almost six years ago, we started talking about this place and that place. And within about 30 seconds of our first conversation about where to move, we were both nowhere with snow. <laughs> and, and then, and then of course, so we moved to Tucson and that very first winter we got snowed on. Um, but here snow <laughs> is, oh, cool. It's snowing. And then half an hour later, there's no snow visible. Uh, typically, yeah, uh, just, just doesn't stick around. And it's, we've gotten snowed on now, I think two winters of the, of the five that we've spent here. Um, it, that's probably likely going to uh, decrease over time. Uh, but it does, it does happen. And the other good thing is that if we actually want snow and it's wintertime, we are about 45 minutes from Mount Lemmon, which is 9,000 feet and they get snow and they have a ski area. So, uh, but, but now I totally understand. We, we were just like, nope, no, no harsh winters. That's it. So yep. uh, instead we get the harsh summer, but what are you going to do? You do it like, like my, um, great uncle who, uh, 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 bought me my first saxophone, God bless him, um, and lived in Phoenix, Arizona. And I asked him how he did it. And he said, you leave your air conditioned house and you go into your air conditioned car and go <laughs> to your right. air conditioned job. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's how for you do it. Four to six months out of the year, especially in Phoenix where it's, it's even warmer than Tucson. Just miserable but, uh, in there. So, so you're in Dallas now and you're not moving back to the snow. 
No. And, uh, and so you, uh, is that right? You, so you are in Dallas? Yeah. Yeah. We are, okay. we are located in beautiful, sunny Dallas, Texas. All right. And, uh, and that's where you started Spoke Media. Yeah. Yeah. So came down here really to open up an audiobook production shop, um, and quickly realized that, um, uh, there was a big opportunity in podcasts um, as that medium was growing, and I was, you know, a, a huge fan just as a listener, um, and and obviously a lot of the skill sets that you develop in audiobooks and music production um, lent themselves to uh, podcasts, and so sure, yeah. uh, we started looking into that and um, uh, decided our first show that we would develop would be a fiction show. Uh, there weren't a lot of fiction podcasts at the time. Uh, and it was also like, we weren't journalists. Um, so it didn't seem to make much sense to try to do something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and we didn't have, you know, uh, uh, any kind of access to big personalities that could drive a chat show. Um, so we, uh, uh, sourced a, a script idea, kind of spent a couple of months, um, taking pitches and talking to people, um, settled on, on the concept and it was, it's a show called terms. Um, and it's, uh, all about a, uh, demagogic presidential candidate who gets elected. Um, and, uh, the sitting uh, president, uh, decides that this is going to be a very bad thing for the country, uh, and sets in, uh, sets in motion a series of events to keep the president elect from taking office. Um, oh, and, if only, I mean, if, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. If so, only. Yeah. So, um, that, this is really interesting to me. I, I was not familiar. I was not aware of the fact that the podcasts that you do are you, you are producing. It's, it's not somebody coming to you and saying, I've got a podcast. I need you to do engineering on it or, or it's not there. It's not that primarily when you got into the, the whole podcast production business, it was producing your own podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we, it, it was kind of the, the kind of thing where you gotta, you gotta, show the example you gotta you gotta make the example because you don't have the pedigree um, right and not that a whole lot of people have had pedigree in podcasts before that point in time but um uh so yeah we wanted to to kind of put out an example and initially it was kind of uh you know let's see where we can sell this you know maybe it's maybe it's an audiobook maybe it's a podcast but let's let's build the thing sure um yeah. and so i shopped around the uh uh the two uh the first two episodes as pilots um, uh, I think it was probably August of 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, and nobody wanted it. Um, they, everybody was like, there's election fatigue and nobody's going to want to listen to this. And, and it's just not the right thing at this time. And kind of got a lot of that. Um, and, uh, election night, 2016 started getting emails. I was going to uh, say, was it November 10th when you actually started <laughs> approaching people again for the second time? <laughs> well, Rich, fortunately, I didn't have to because they, they, uh, they immediately reached That's out. That's great. That is great. <laughs> and we got really fortunate that, um, and big shout out to Michelle Cobb, who I think you've had on here before. I have, um, yeah. And she was the head of the APA at the time, and I had sent um, the episodes to her, and she had just started working on a thing with Hernan Lopez at Wondery, um, for LA theater works. And she said, you know what, Hernan might be interested in this. Can I send it to him? Um, and two days later we signed a deal with Wondery to, uh, release terms. Um, that's and great. That's, that's what really got us into podcasts. So that kind of opened the door. And so a little bit of luck and, and a really good show. Um, and that's how, how we got in. 
I'm really interested, though, about the fact that your in your original intention opening the studio was audiobook production, because you don't you don't hear that too often. I mean, I know that that's the case with Audible, but um, with most recording studios, with most places that are that are doing that kind of work, uh, audiobooks are oh yeah, we can do that, but it's it's more about music typically, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that was the world that I had come right out of. Um, mm-hmm. and that's where I had the relationships and, you know, we had audible as a client from day one, which was great. Sure. Um, yeah. So it makes perfect sense. It's just that it's a, uh, it's a little unusual to hear that. Um, but clearly because you had that experience, especially with audible, um, that, that would, that would seem like a good fit. Absolutely. And I also had the experience in the music business to know that opening a recording studio to do music is suicide. <laughs> I'm not, too surprised to hear that. I, I'm not all that familiar with it, but um, just, you know, ha- having talked to a few people about that, uh, you know, just touching on that subject over the years, uh, I, I can see how that could be problematic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, opening a studio, no matter what you do, is is a really tough business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you uh, started out looking into audiobooks, realized that you wanted to do something more. And so you got into podcasting. How does it break down at this point? How much of your work is podcasting? How much is audiobook production? How much is anything else? Uh, so if you look at our numbers last year, uh, we were about 50, 50, uh, podcasts and audiobooks in terms of our revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, uh, we are majority podcasts. Uh, really in that short a period of time from last year to halfway through this year. Yeah, because we had already started making the shift um, in audiobooks, uh, away from audiobooks and, and more focused on podcasts. Um, I'll let you know in a little secret. Um, uh, the economics of audiobooks are really difficult. Um, really? And, <laughs> <laughs> and so what you have is like, you know, like the, the whole reason that I got, I, I learned as much as I did at Audible um, was because they were trying to save money. Uh, you know, when, when I started at Audible and, and you know, we, we were talking about how it, this, it was this kind of inflection point in audiobooks, And part of that was Audible was made it their mission to say, we're going to take everything that's ever been put into print and we're going to make it into audio. Mm-hmm. And it was about just getting everything on there and they had to find ways to cut costs. And the first thing they did was get rid of audiobook directors and said, let's hire young engineers and throw them in the room with really talented actors. Um, and so I got to learn on the job from, you know, your Jonathan Davises and your, your Suzanne Torrens and, and folks like that um, and just got, got really uh, uh, fortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that sounds like a great uh, foundation for going and, and doing it on your own. I, I do find it interesting that Audible just announced recently that they were laying off, I think, everybody in their podcast area. Yeah, man. That was a, that was an interesting Google alert to get, let me tell you. No uh, doubt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I assume that that will impact your business somewhat. Um, not particularly. Um, no? Audible, uh, Audible has been, uh, on the podcast side, virtually all in-house. Um, and so they'll, they'll, they would source ideas, but they had production in house. Um, they were developing most of their ideas in house. Um, so that wasn't really, I think it's interesting from an industry, industry perspective. Um, the, the fact that they did pull out of podcasts. Um, but I also like it, it doesn't seem to be any kind of indicator for the podcast industry because audible was always this outlier. Uh, you know, they were dipping their toe in the water and it was really about driving traffic to audible channels. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's, it's certainly interesting. 
Um, and there are certainly a lot of really talented people that are now going to get snatched up by Gimlet and NPR or go back to NPR and, uh, um, and continue to do great work. Um, but yeah, I think that it's largely, uh, like aside from being newsworthy, it's kind of a non-event. Mm, okay. I, I just would have thought that there would be then extra work that would be going to anybody else who is producing podcasts. But if, if everything was in house, uh, I could see how that might not, ha- might not happen that way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about, uh, it was about 50, 50 and now you're going more into podcasts, but you're still doing audiobook production as well. Yeah, we've actually, um, uh, the last couple of weeks we've been booked out, um, pretty solid all the way through, um, doing some work for Hachette and for Brilliance and, uh, a couple of independent authors, uh, that we've been working with. Um, so yeah, we've been, we've been pretty well booked lately, but, um, it's kind of, kind of pales in comparison to the number of things we're, <laughs> we're trying to work on right now in podcasts. And on the audiobooks that you work on, uh, what types of audiobooks do you work on? What genres? Uh, everything? Anything uh, in particular? Do you have a, a, um, a certain genre or type of audiobook that you gravitate towards or that you get hired to produce more often than anything else? Uh, when it comes to the audiobooks, it's really whatever, whatever the client is sending. Um, so, so it doesn't tend to be any kind of... Um, uh, genre strategy, uh, because we're really just a production house when it comes to audiobooks. Um, I think if we were, if we were publishing and distributing, that would be certainly be a different story. Um, mm-hmm. but for us, it's, it's, um, you know, whatever, whatever text they're sending on our way, um, uh, that's, that's what we're going to be, that's what we're going to be doing. Um, so of course with, with any audiobook, uh, uh, enterprise, you know, 20 to 40% of that is going to be adult fiction, which is everybody's favorite. By adult fiction, I mean porn, just to be clear. <laughs> We've all recorded porn. Just admit it. We have to do it. It's part of the industry. Got it. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so there's no specific genre that you gravitate towards. Is there anything that you personally prefer to work on? Um, I have always really liked um, uh, books that uh, uh, either uh, teach me something in a really fun way, like I had a really fun time with, um, uh, Richard Thaler's, uh, uh, misbehaving, which was all about behavioral economics. Um, mm. fantastic book. Um, so like books like that, I really enjoy. Um, but, uh, uh, I think just like any other kind of art form, like my favorite stuff is always the, um, I was talking with my team the other day about taste, right? And mm-hmm. to me at the bottom end, of, at the top end of the spectrum, you've got something like, we'll, we'll say like Brecht, right? Where it's, it's super high concept, super high art. Um, but it's also kind of his whole point was to alienate the audience. And it's just, you know, it's a, maybe a little too highfalutin for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the bottom end of the spectrum, you've got, I don't know, like Big Bang Theory. Um, and <laughs> everything that I really like doing is like just below that Brecht side of the, the spectrum. Um, yeah. so like I got to do a really great book, um, one Q 84, uh, many years ago that was just spectacular. Um, or, uh, there's a, there's a sci-fi and I'm not a sci-fi guy, but, uh, there's this sci-fi author, Robert Sawyer, um, who I've been fortunate enough to do several of his books and I find him just, wildly entertaining, um, a spectacular writer. Um, so yeah, it's, for me, it's, it's, it's things that are, that are really well-written and, and explore things in an interesting and fun way. That's, that's what gets me going for sure. For sure. Yeah. 
Sounds great. So what role exactly do you play? You said that you just did some work for Hachette and Audible's been on board uh, from day one. So walk me through a project. What happens? Uh, so, uh, man, I should bring our audiobook producers in here for this because, uh, you know, I don't really touch that stuff that much anymore. Um, we've got a great team here and, and we've been building them up for the last couple of years. Um, well, just kind of a, just kind of a high level. I mean, what, what, uh, what pieces of it do you, do you guys work on? Absolutely. So it, you know, it depends on the project. So we'll do full production where, um, clients send us a script and we, uh, cast an actor from our pool of talent here, uh, bring them into the studio, record it. We typically do a punch record. Um, and then our team of editors will edit it and then mix and master it. And we deliver to the client, you know, in between there's, there's QC and pickups and, and all those fun things. So um, full, total full production where you get the text and then you're responsible for every aspect of putting the audiobook together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, then and, we'll do, and is it always recording in studio or do you work with narrators remotely? Uh, occasionally we'll work with narrators remotely. Um, uh, we did a project, um, last year with, uh, the, the author reached out to hire us for it. And, um, she was enamored with, uh, Jenna Lamia, which is totally understandable because Jenna is a fantastic narrator. Um, mm -hmm. and so, uh, she had a preferred studio in LA and so we booked her out there and, and we just handled logistics and then did the post, um, for it. So it really all depends on the situation. Like this, this book that we just did for, I can't remember if it was the Hachette or the Brilliance one, but one of the ones that we just did recently, like we were just being booked out as the studio because um, there's a fantastic um, kind of rock star audiobook narrator that is just relocated to, to Dallas um, and was looking for a studio uh, to record. Um, so it really, yeah, it depends on, on what the situation is, but we'll do full production all the way down to just, you know, being a studio. Got it. What about uh, if if a narrator comes to you and says, well, I, I booked this project and it's either going through ACX or Spoken Realms or uh, Find a Way or something like that. And uh, I am going to narrate it, but I either don't do the engineering stuff myself or I'm just now getting to the point where I'm farming that out. Is that something that you do? Uh, not typically. Um, we found that that is a really difficult situation to to make work um in terms of doing kind of post-production for home studio narrators mm -hmm. um they just again it's not so much the um it's not the 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 narrator's fault it's not like the audio is is you know unusable or or particularly problematic um but uh, back to the economics of audiobooks being very difficult to make work um, it's just, it's tough with what most publishers are willing to pay if it's not a celebrity record. Mm -hmm. Um, it's tough to make the whole thing work in most cases. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of situations where, you know, the publishers will go out and they'll spend the money that's required to do a really good audiobook. But for the most part, um, once, you know, it, you can, you can make a good living as a publisher, you can make a good living as a narrator. Um, uh, the, once you start to get into production, unless you are, uh, kind of a handful of studios, like we were talking about before, like Dion and listen up and, uh, John Marshall media and a couple other folks who have been doing this for a really long time and been cranking out top notch work for decades, mm -hmm. um, aside from listen up and they're very new and, and kind of, uh, but got a good start at it. Um, it's, it's a really tough thing to make, to make work and, and my hats off to, um, all those folks for, um, for being able to, to sustain, 
Yeah, I, I hear you on that. It, uh, it it can be difficult in a lot of different areas. I know that narrators have that problem too. I mean, once you get established, it's not as difficult to get the work uh, and um, command a, a reasonable rate, if not a, a great rate. Um, but it is certainly difficult starting out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you know, that's true in a lot of industries as well. I don't want to sit here and cry about audiobooks too much because in every industry, when you're starting out, it's always more difficult. But um, it, it is very true that in some places it's uh, more difficult than others. Absolutely. And well, you know, it's, it's just kind of a, it's a, it's a shift in the model and in audience expectations. So, you know, you, you can't produce, um, you can only produce a movie for so cheap, right? Um, before it, before audiences look at it and go, that doesn't, that doesn't yeah. work at all. Uh, yeah, um, I know exactly what you mean. It's the same thing with uh, commercials. So mm-hmm. you watch you watch TV and you're watching you know a, a national cable station and you watch a commercial, and then you switch over to a local station at three in the morning. Oh, mm-hmm. that's a non-union commercial. I mean, you you can just tell the difference, right? So, and a lot of that is budget, and and the mm-hmm. same is true with film. Just like you say, if if you get to a certain level, all of a sudden something suffers and it's noticeable. Absolutely, and for audiobooks, where really the the prime you know, the most important thing, the only thing is the narrator and how they're telling the story. The, the production quality, like people will give a lot more leeway there. One, because I think most people like, like the number of times where like my wife and I are driving in the car and we're listening to a podcast together and I'm like, Oh God, that edit was terrible. And she's like, I didn't like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Like nobody heard that. Um, (laughs) and so, you know, there are things that go into really making a top notch audiobook that quite honestly, aren't going to be noticed by most of the audience. Um, and so at what, that point, like, what are you doing it for? Why are you spending the money if you don't really need to, if the audience is still going to enjoy it just as much? Um, and so that starts to play into to all those things when it comes to the economics. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to, to make work. And that's why I say, like, hats off to the, to the production houses that have, that have really been able to make this business work. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear that. Uh, so you have, how many recording spaces do you have? Uh, so right now we've got two. And, and to describe your uh, studios to me. Uh, so right now I am sitting in the larger of the two booths. We actually just use whisper rooms, um, for the moment. Uh, we were, uh, we were acquired about three months ago and our new parent company has, um, put us up in the offices with the marketing agency that they own. And so we are uh, on the 39th floor of a downtown Dallas building uh, with a gorgeous view. Um, wow. And I am looking out the, uh, the booth window out, uh, out uh, over downtown right now. Uh, so we've got a, a, the main room is a uh, whisper room that could not begin to give you the dimensions of it, but it fits two people comfortably. Oh, uh, nice. And then we've got a uh, smaller whisper room uh, that's, you know, essentially a vertical coffin. Um, and you, you squeeze in there and you do what you got to do and you get the hell out. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's interesting that you were acquired. Was that part of your plan when you started a company? Uh, no, no. Um, but uh, what I realized early on uh, was that uh, I did not want to build a small lifestyle business. You know, I like to, I like to do things big and I saw a need for a certain amount of scale in the podcast industry on the production side. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's something that a lot of podcast companies are struggling with. 
Um, and so we really wanted to be able to, to be that option. Um, and so, uh, still I was not interested in selling the company. Um, but in January, uh, opened up a fundraising round, uh, to raise some money and help us get to the next level. Um, and what I ran into was a lot more people wanting to buy us than wanting to invest in us. Hmm. Um, and so we kind of looked at a couple of offers and, and, uh, figured out what made the most sense and, uh, signed with, um, a company called high five media, um, that, uh, that owns several other companies in the entertainment space and a full service marketing agency, um, and, uh, are loving our new situation so far. It's been, uh, it's been pretty spectacular. That's great. That was my next question. So, so far, does it seem like that is, uh, working out the way that you would hope? Absolutely. It was, you know, the George Lachlan, who is the head of high five media, um, uh, you know, and who's really, you know, responsible for this whole thing. Um, when we first started talking, I of course was doing my due diligence and, you know, tried to find everybody I knew in, in the, the radio business that had done business with him at some point and talked to all the, the founders of the different companies that they owned. And let me tell you, it was really hard to get people to say a bad word about this guy. Um, and so that boded very well. Um, and what I was promised at the beginning has certainly played out thus far in that, uh, you know, George doesn't want to come in and run my business. He wants to give me the, the resources needed to, to make this business succeed. Um, and so it's kind of been a perfect situation. Like they help out where we need them. Um, and other than that, like it's, it's on us to, to do our thing and, and, uh, make sure we do it well. That sounds like a, a great uh, result. I know that uh, I worked for a startup for uh, for several years, uh, about geez, a decade ago, I guess. And um, the owner was very cautious, and he had a couple of offers. And he said, "The last thing that I want, I'm being very careful here because the last thing I want is for somebody to come in and all of a sudden." they, they buy us. And isn't that great until they get rid of people and they change it into something that is not at all what I was trying to build. And, uh, so he held out and we, we lost. Um, so it, it's a, it's a tough balance. The, the best thing is to have somebody come in and buy it and say, Nope, you're doing great. You run it. Yep. We were, we have just been incredibly fortunate, um, with how everything has worked out. I could not be, uh, could not be happier with the situation and, you know, talk about not coming in and firing. Like you, we've, we've doubled our team in the last month and I'm looking to do it again in the next month. Um, so wow, that's know, great. we're, we're really getting the backing we need and it, uh, it feels good. So yeah, I know a lot of, a lot of founders, unfortunately just like, don't get to say that. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a tough balance for sure. Definitely. So in your, in your whisper rooms there, what kind of equipment do you have? I'm, I'm thinking, uh, there are probably going to be a few narrators out there who are listening and who are gearheads like I am and who are really interested to hear what kind of advice you have for setting up a uh, home studio, whether it's a whisper room or home built like mine, or even not a, uh, separate, you know, room, but mm -hmm. actually just a closet or whatever they have. Uh, what, what kind of equipment do you have and what do you advise people do for home studios? Yeah. Um, I, so let's start with the equipment that I'm, I'm staring at. So I'm, I've currently got three microphones scattered across here, two um, Shure SM7Bs and a Neumann TLM-103 uh, are hanging out in this room with me. Uh, I'm on the Shure SM7B right now. Um, I uh, obviously Neumann uh, uh, U87 is the you know gold standard, a spectacular microphone. 
Um, mm. When you're recording uh, at home, you don't need anything more than a TLM 103. Um, don't waste your money on getting a U87. Um, I think it's that's one of the dumbest things I ever hear from narrators is I can't wait to buy my first U87. No, you don't. Don't ever buy a U87. If you're using <laughs> a U87, it should be because someone has paid for you to go to a dope studio because you're that great of a narrator that they're like, we're going to spend 150 bucks an hour just to put you in a room. Right. Like, there's no reason for you to have a U87 at home. No one. There's not a single narrator on this planet. Scott Brick does not need to have a U87 in his head. <laughs> Nobody does. It's just not necessary. For some um, of us, for some of us, I will say that it's not really a need. <laughs> it's just a want. <laughs> I hear you. There, there is a pair of, there's a pair of Atom SV2 studio monitors in our edit room that are probably overkill, but I really wanted them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really like for, for home recording. So I, I did a, um, Oh, it was for Audiophile or the APA or somebody. I did like a, uh, I was part of a webinar last year and we were, it was me and two other folks and we were kind of talking through the agenda before. And, um, I was supposed to be talking about home studios for, for narrators. Um, and they, they said, you know, what, what mics are you going to recommend? And I was like, actually, you know, I'd like to, well, we'll talk about the TLM 103 and, and large diaphragm condensers and all that. And that's fine. Um, but I'd really like to talk about the Shure SM7B. Um, you know, it's a dynamic mic, uh, and when you're recording, and it sounds great. I mean, Michael Jackson recorded parts of Thriller on an SM7B. Like, it's an oh, amazing wow. microphone. Um, it also only costs $350. Um, it's, it's the standard for podcasts. Um, most, like, top-level podcasts that you listen to are recorded on an SM7B. Um, and so it's a really great mic, and because it's a dynamic mic, it picks up way less background noise. Like, you get a U87 in your closet, like, you're going to be hearing your neighbors whispering. Um, and, and so having an SM7B, while it's not going to give you the same dynamic range, it's going to give you close to that, um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to focus more on just your voice. So I think for uh, home narrators, it's something I really recommend experimenting with, especially because it's so much cheaper than getting a TLM-103, um, and it's a much better mic than like, you know, like a Rode NT1A is really great. Don't get me wrong. I know a lot of people use those. Um, and, and I do like, it's, it's a great sounding mic and I don't think that you can go wrong with that. Um, but for not that much more money, um, or I think maybe even a little less money, I'm not really sure what an NT1A is going for these days. Um, you can get a, a, a SM7B. Um, and I think it's, it really makes a lot of sense for a lot of folks. Um, but in terms of like, uh, the rest of the gear, uh, I always recommend the, uh, the Scarlett, uh, 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 the Focusrite Scarlett series, um, for home narrators. Uh, I think they're fantastic sounding preamps, um, for a little interface that's not that expensive. Um, if you want to go with a separate preamp, uh, I also really like, uh, Focusrite's, um, I'm blanking on, um, uh, the model number, I think it's the 428 Mark II. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it's like a thousand bucks and the thing sounds absolutely spectacular. Um, but quite frankly, like if you get that Scarlet, um, you know, you don't necessarily like it, it, it'd be fun and sound better to upgrade to a nicer preamp. Um, but you can, you can do what you need to do with just that Scarlet and a decent microphone. Um, but I think the most important thing about recording at home is, uh, your space. 
you know, it's, it's all about finding the right space. If you can find something that does not share walls with the outside, um, you know, that's why closets are so great, a reasonably compact space that you can put a lot of, uh, soft materials in, even if you don't have studio foam, um, you know, you can, you can go in the closet and make sure that your fluffiest, you know, coats and sweaters are, are front and center around you. Um, I think that's, that's really the biggest thing is getting your space right. Um, cause if you've got a great mic in a terrible space, like you've just, you've wasted your money on a, on a microphone. That's good to hear the, this came up recently. Uh, somebody asked a question. They said, well, I got this blue snowball and they were um, quickly disabused of the notion that a blue snowball was going to be acceptable for, for audiobook work. Um, but, um, but somebody else said, you know, your space really make really matters. And I chimed in and said, um, yeah, just to pile on on that, uh, your space is really, really, really important. Um, and, and I, I kind of hammered on it. And so to hear from an engineer right after that happened, that, uh, you would agree with the fact that a good mic in a lousy space is way worse than a lousy mic in a good space. Um, uh, that's good to hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will, I will, I will take a lousy mic in a great space almost every time. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that doesn't surprise me too much. All right. So, uh, so that's, Good advice on the uh, on the home studio. Um, what other advice do you? Well, well, first let me ask you. So you said that uh, sometimes you do everything in the production, for, uh, including casting, and that even though mostly you do recording there in your space, occasionally you will work with somebody remotely. If there was somebody who wanted to be considered by you when you're making casting decisions, what would they need to do? Just asking for a friend. Uh, <laughs> storytellers at spokemedia.io. Um, and they can uh, reach out to us uh, there and uh, send us resume and whatever materials. Um, and we'll take a look. Okay. Sounds Always good. looking to expand the narrator pool. Cause we still, we, we do a lot of, um, uh, fiction on the podcast side and have, have a handful of things in development right now. Um, so yeah, we're always looking for, for talented actors. That's great. Uh, so what other, what other advice would you have for narrators out there besides getting a great space and don't worry so much about the microphone and don't even consider a U87? What other uh, advice do you have for narrators out there who are either kind of just starting out or they've been at it for a while, but they aren't the big stars like you mentioned before? Mm. Yeah, um, I think uh, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, and I think that is number one and applies to a lot of things. So one, um, a good night's sleep before you record an audiobook will do more than any prep you could ever possibly do. Don't get me wrong. You need to prep. You need to understand the book inside and out before you start. Um, but, uh, getting a, a solid eight hours or six hours or 10 hours or whatever it is that does your body good. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is by far the most important thing you can do. Also make sure you're hydrating 24 to 48 hours before you start your session. Um, you know, it really takes that long for the, the moisture to really soak into your body. Um, so hydrate like crazy, um, before you, before you get into the booth. Um, and it's not just about drinking water while you're going, although that's important. Um, so I think the, keeping in mind that it's, it's, it's a, it's a physical endeavor, even though you're just sitting there for, four to six hours a day, um, sitting there and talking for four to six hours a day and not just talking, but performing and elocuting, 
um, really takes it out of you. Um, and the difference, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that astounds me about the top notch narrators, um, the performances are, are amazing and their acting work is, is incredible. But what ends up really impressing me the most is when they come in and they're one, extraordinarily efficient and, and rarely make mistakes. Um, but two will come in like John Keating, who is one of my favorite narrators of all time. He, I, I got to do, um, sidetrack back to an earlier question. My favorite project I ever worked on was this book called Skippy Dies. Uh, Paul Murray, Irish author, fantastic story. Um, and, and we brought in the, uh, bunch of actors from the Irish repertory theater to voice all the different parts. Oh, John, wow. John Keating was the narrator. Um, and John, like he comes in and he knocks out like six hours and he walks out of the booth with like four or five finished hours in the can. Like he is just a machine. He just wow. goes. Um, and part of that is just like natural gift, but also part of that is taking care of yourself and, and doing your warmups. And, and, you know, uh, Scott Aiello is another great example. Like that dude can go forever. He's fantastic. Um, and he warms up like nobody I've ever seen. Um, and so you've got to find the right thing for you, but so much of it is preparation. There's nothing that used to drive me nuts more than a, uh, an actor coming in and, um, assuming that they could just read a book mm -hmm. and that's not what it is at all. And so preparation, 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 it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, and by that same token too, slow down, slow the hell down audiobook narrators. Like <laughs> you, when you start, people come in when they're starting out and in, you know, first like book or two and you know, part of it's part of it's nerves, part of it's not understanding the cadence, but you're going to want to go slower than you're used to. Um, it helps, it helps the listeners along. Um, so yeah. those are the biggest things. I, uh, I, I heard that recently. A, a friend of mine uh, got one of my audiobooks. She's not a big audiobook listener, but I told her, well, you know, I really actually am kind of proud of this one. I, I liked it. I liked the, I really liked the book and, um, because it was more about the, the characters and the story than, uh, you know, than the character voices. It was, it was that I really liked the underlying story that was involved. And I think you might like it. And I actually feel like I did a good job on it. And, uh, she listened to a couple of chapters and she wrote, and I swear I wanted to frame it and put it up on the wall. She said, wow, you've really upped your game. You really know where to put the pauses in. And I thought, oh my God, it's like I've arrived. <laughs> it's like that, that is so important to actually hear that I have a better understanding of the fact that silence is golden and knowing where to pause and how to pause and how long to pause is, is really good. <laughs> Absolutely. Pacing, <laughs> pacing is everything. And yeah. you know, audiobooks, podcast, anytime you're in a, in a medium where you've got limited tools, you know, we don't have all the tools that visual artists have. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of conveying meaning and emotion and, and thoughtfulness and pacing and pausing, uh, you know, it's, is the most crucial thing. I mean, that's the first thing that we teach our audiobook editors. Um, and when, we, when we convert them over to podcast editors, we, we kind of reinforce this, but, uh, the, you're, you should spend much more time on the spaces than you do on the words. Mm, yeah. That's a great, that's a great succinct way to put that. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I had a, I had a, um, uh, a, a music teacher, um, one time, uh, talk about music as art painted on the canvas of time, um, and narration and podcasts and any audio format 
is very much the same thing. It's not fixed. It's, it's moving across time. And when you're moving across time, the time that you leave in between is just as important as the time that you spend with your mouth open. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that way of putting it. All right. Well, uh, Keith, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come into the speakeasy and uh, have a Coke while I have my whiskey sour, which is almost gone at this point. Perfect. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and it's been great talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, you are. You are absolutely welcome. And uh, I will give a, another quick shout out to Jamie Matler. I really appreciate the fact that she recommended you to me and uh, I will send her a note and telling her thanks again. So you mentioned thanks, uh, story, storytellers at uh, spokemedia.io. Was that right? Yes, indeed. And what about uh, any other contact info? What's uh, you? I, uh, I'm sure that you have a website because I know I've seen it. I don't have it up in front of me right now. What's the uh, URL for that? Uh, yeah, you can check us out at spokemedia.io uh, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as spoke underscore media. Uh, and I think those are all the things that I'm supposed to shout out. Uh, right. <laughs> check out, uh, oh, you know what? Uh, check out uh, our, our most recent podcast uh, is a show called Breach uh, that came out on the Midroll Network. Uh, it's all about uh, history's biggest and most notorious data breaches and hacks. Uh, a lot of fun five-part series uh, that we just wrapped up in March. Wow, uh, there, I'm sure that uh, that has uh, that's an area where there's a lot to report in the past several years. Yes, indeed, that was that was a pain in the butt getting that show out because we're like working on deadline and all of these things. Like right, it was right when Cambridge Analytica happened too. Uh, so just like every day, there's something new. We're like, oh, we got to drop in an update. Well, we got to drop in an update. And just eventually, you just get to a point where like, no, it's got to print. We got to go. Yeah, it's done. Yeah. News will still happen. So that reminds you, mentioning your podcast. That reminds me. So terms is that still ongoing? Uh, so terms is, uh, season two is going to happen. Um, it's, it's been a long road to hoe, um, not to get too inside baseball, but, um, uh, 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 terms was a show that, uh, I created with my former partner, Lindsey Graham, who is a, uh, spectacular creator and audio engineer and sound designer. Um, I, I thought he was a Senator. <laughs> not that Lindsey Graham <laughs> even has to say so in the ads that we do for terms no um, doubt <laughs> uh, but Lindsey ultimately uh, uh, you know uh, when, when I talked earlier about wanting to turn this into a a company with many employees at a large scale um, Lindsey and I ended up diverting because you know he he uh, had a vision of of something where you know it's it's uh, a little bit smaller and a little bit more focused and and so I get that. So when we parted ways, um, uh, he took terms with him. So he owns that, uh, oh, although right. spoke spoke still owns a little piece of it. Um, but I was talking to Lindsay uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and uh, they're working on scripts for uh, season two. And honestly, the big roadblock right now is that. Uh, Lindsay's other show that he uh, does on Wondery, American History Tellers, is going like gangbusters. Um, and so that is taking up a lot of his time and is kind of slowing down terms a little bit. So uh, I am told that term season two will happen. Um, for now, you can listen to all 13 episodes of season one wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that sounds um, really fascinating to me. I'm definitely going to check that one out. It was that was a that was a that was a project that was a lot of fun to work on, um, and didn't quite achieve our ultimate goal of um, you know changing the course of real political history. But it was it was a fun show nonetheless. 
Yeah, no doubt. All right. Well, that sounds great. Thanks again, Keith. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Rich. This was a blast, man. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Keith Reynolds for stopping in and to Jamie Mantler for suggesting I get in touch with him. I really enjoyed hearing about his podcast project and his home studio advice, although I'm still going to buy a U87 when there's money in the budget, and I hope you did as well. You can find the audiobook Speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. Special thanks this week to Parable, who left a very nice review on iTunes, calling the audiobook Speakeasy fascinatingly entertaining and informative. I'm so glad you're enjoying the show, Parable, and I look forward to bringing in some more guests who are fascinating, entertaining, and informative. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated and helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers! <laughs>